Welcome to the Policy Viz podcast. I'm your host, John Schwabish. I'm here with my good friend, ex-DC patriot, Rob Simmon from Planet Labs. Rob, welcome to the show. Hi, John. Thanks. Uh, thanks for coming on. Um, great to see you again, man. It's been, what, you've been in, uh, in California at Planet Labs now for two years. A year? No, a not year. even a year. A we year. moved out in September. Nice. And uh, you were at NASA before that. And now doing some fun stuff at Planet Labs. You want to um, maybe just explain for listeners uh, what Planet Labs does and what your role is there? Sure. So Planet Labs is in some ways a classic Silicon Valley startup, um, but more focused on hardware and space than the traditional startup internet app type of thing. So it was founded by three NASA scientists who were working at Ames, and they were interested in using satellites and taking pictures of the Earth to help people do things like manage natural, natural disasters or improve agriculture in poor areas of the world and basically find ways to use data to help people who didn't have the resources to use the traditional data that comes from either the government, like NASA, uh, USGS, or from private industries like Digital Globe. Um, so they wanted to find something that was in between those two spaces and make something more usable. And they basically figured out that to do that, you actually had to um, find a way to make money on the data as well as use it to help people. So they started developing a fleet of satellites based on uh, the CubeSat format, which is a 10 centimeter by 10 centimeter satellite. Uh, but you can actually stack several of those together. So ours are 10 centimeters by 10 centimeters by 30 centimeters. So they're you know, literally about the size of a bread box. Um, they're pretty much all telescope uh, with a camera on an end, on one end. And they take imagery that's three to five meters per pixel. So you can just barely resolve cars, but you can see individual houses. Right. Um, and so... What you can do with these small low-cast satellites is you don't necessarily get super high-quality data, but you can get the entire Earth every day by launching between 100 and 200. Okay. And so you can see things that the traditional model, which relies on specifically tasking a satellite, so taking a picture of a specific place at a specific time, if you're not doing that, you're just getting the whole world, you can see things that you miss otherwise. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can see things that you didn't know you wanted to be looking for. So in effect, you're actually building a time machine where you can go back and look at, you know, before a disaster, you can say, hey, was there a, a landslide that blocked uh, part of a river upstream of where this flood happened or something like that? Um, and you also end up with uh, data that can be sold less expensively per unit area. Mm-hmm. So it's basically you know, f- helps fulfill that obligation or that, that desire to build a system and, and acquire data that actually helps people in addition to making money. So yeah. it's this very ambitious project. Um, we've gone through several cycles of satellites. I think we're currently launching what's considered to be Build 12 and designing Build 13. And so this was over a period of about three and a half years since the first one was designed and built. Um, yeah. And we've been launching for about two years at this point. Yeah. Um, so we're still in more of a research and development phase than an operational phase and have a few dozen satellites operating in orbit right now. Um, but 
by this time next year should be at or close to the goal of getting the whole world every day. And so, so before I ask you, before we talk about your specific role, I wonder, are there folks there, or maybe you're doing this, that are um, sort of looking for the like outlier sort of thing? Because it was interesting how you said that we're taking pictures of everything. So we sort of have like, we can look at like everything. So that means there may be things that, about the world in like remote places that we haven't seen before. Um, are, there, are there folks there sort of looking for those outlier type uh, formations or agriculture that, you know, you know, that maybe have not sort of shown up in sort of traditional satellite images? Sure. So right now it's a little informal. Like literally we have, you know, uh, HipChat, which is an instant messaging client, and there's a channel that people are just like, hey, I found this really cool thing. Yeah. And, you know, That's it's like, cool. oh, are we going to publish it on the gallery? Are we going to, you know, look at it a little bit more in depth? And we're also like evaluating the quality of the satellites and the imagery yeah. through here. But at the same time, we're developing some algorithms to basically do automated change detection. So yeah, yeah. do you see a new set of fields being developed in the Saudi Arabian desert? Yeah. Or do you see... You know, the latest image we put up is logging in the Pacific Northwest. Right. And so you can do automated change detection on that, um, as well as building an API so that you can do automated querying of the database so that other people can develop techniques to look at our data set and basically discover things that we haven't thought of yet. And so are you guys, are you really uh, sort of visualizing those data as you, as you sort of build these algorithms and go through, are, are, are there data visualization techniques you guys are using to sort of visualize the actual data aside from like the image itself? Does that make sense? You know? uh, oh yeah, so right now we're doing it um, pretty simply Yeah. because it's all for internal consumption. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, the eventual goal is to make very polished, very well-designed maps that are information rather than data, yeah. if that makes sense. Yeah, so yeah. basically, you can see the change, you can see what type of change it is without having to pour through the data on your own or even like, you know, compare two images side by side. You yeah. just you look at one map that says, okay, we've got, you know, the health of these crops has improved 50% over last year or you know, the, this glacier has moved or, yeah. you know, whatever, whatever we're looking at. But you definitely want to do things where, you know, like any type of data visualization, you're focusing on the information that you want to transmit. Right. Um, and like distill it down into the important bits instead of throwing everything uh, out there at people. Yeah, so that, yeah. that's not what I'm working on now. It's something I hope to be working on when I get sort of the basic imaging part um, nailed down. Right. So... Uh, for, for, for listeners who have uh, heard of you, they probably know you best from your, um, I will call it a legendary series on color that you wrote for Thank you. visually. Um, and I suspect you're doing a lot of work on color at Planet Labs. Do you want to talk a little bit about what, uh, what that role entails? Sure. So right now, actually, what I'm mostly focused on is working on the color of the satellite imagery. So when a satellite takes an image of the surface of the Earth, it's above the atmosphere. And so you get all of the effects of the light coming from the sun, traveling through the atmosphere, hitting the surface, and then traveling back through the atmosphere to the sensor. So the image that an astronaut or a satellite sees is not quite the same thing as what we see from ground level. 
So what I'm trying to do, um, starting on an individual basis where you look at a, a single scene and then try to match what we would expect it to see, uh, how we expect things to look, and then sort of grow that out so we can do it on a systematic level and do it globally every day. Yeah. And piece all those images together so that they sort of look right. seamless. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. You, it's, it's challenging. It's work that I had done previously uh, with colleagues, including Rado Stokely at NASA with the Blue Marble, um, where you, you basically take an algorithmic approach. And by having access to a lot of data, you can do things to homogenize it and sort of throw out bad data. Um, and at, there we were doing it at 500 meters per pixel. Mm -hmm. Now we're going to be doing it at five meters per pixel. <laughs> so it's this huge increase yeah. in data volume and also in some ways variability because you're looking at much smaller scale. Right. So it could be considered a much bigger challenge. Um, but we can use a lot of the techniques that we used earlier um, to try to apply that to, right. to the new data set. Right, interesting, interesting. Well, that sounds great. Let's, um, I want to switch gears a little bit um, and talk about color more generally for folks who are out there uh, creating visualizations or, or creating uh, products. And, and to ask you, based on the, you know, the work that you've done on color, what, what do you view as sort of like the biggest mistakes people make when it comes to using color in their visualization work? Um, I think it's still uh, the rainbow palette, you know, 25. I was gonna, if I had money, I would have put down, Rob was going to say the rainbow color palette. <laughs> because it's the obvious answer. Um, so, uh, Trenish and Rigowitz published a paper, paper, I think even in the mid-90s, you know, about what scientists and engineers need to understand about color, um, where very commonly the, the rainbow palette is used. And that's, it's a, basically just a straight, red, green, and blue palette that's basically presenting colors in a way that computers represent colors. So just, you know, red is 255.00, green is 0.255.0, and blue is 00.255. And just basically ramping between those to go from red, orange, yellow, green, blue. Um, and you get sort of this very striking, very bright, very rich and saturated color palette um, that when you're using it to represent data becomes misleading because it's not showing colors in the way that our eyes and brains interpret color. Mm -hmm. So you end up with like bands in the color in the color bar. So you see areas where there's a lot, it seems like there's a lot of contrast and a lot of change and that's just due to the palette. And there's er other areas where there, all those variations might be smoothed out and obscured again, not because there's anything any lack of detail in the data you're trying to show, but merely because in, say, the green region, you know, you get this huge band of sort of uniform color. Yeah. And both because it's a default in many types of software and because people are so used to seeing data presented this way, there's a lot of resistance to changing. Mm -hmm. I mean, it takes a little bit more work, um, although I was very pleased to see MATLAB actually developed a perceptual color palette and switch so that new versions of MATLAB use, I think it's called Perula, um, and published a very cool white paper um, about why they made the change and perceptual issues, which a lot of people hadn't been giving enough consideration to earlier. Um, so I would say that it's still a problem, yeah. but it's one that's 
there's slow improvement. And I think there seems to be like a growing design consciousness. Yeah. And so a lot of younger scientists are definitely taking this type of thing more seriously. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's, it's partly you have this for researchers and academics, you know, who are using SPSS or MATLAB or Stator or Excel, they sort of just, they open the tool and whatever the color palettes are there, they're just going to use those defaults, trusting that the, the software has done the right job. And I, I, in my experience, a lot of people feel um, not comfortable going out and picking a color palette or, or creating an, uh, another color palette, not because of the technical challenges of putting it into the computer, but, you know, how do I know that the color palette I've chosen is a good palette? Um, so what do you have? Do you have thoughts on what what researchers or, or, or scholars who are in, or people who are just not familiar enough with how to pick a good color palette? What what uh, um, approach they should take to that? Yeah, I think the the most straightforward way is to just go to Cynthia Brewer's site uh, called Color Brewer. And she basically built a tool that will, it shows a little demo map. It has a bunch of pre-selected palettes. And you can just go click on the palette. It'll give you the RGB values for the color ramp. Um, she talks about the theory of why she's doing it, the different types of imagery, uh, or not the different types of imagery, the different types of data and, and how you use different palettes that are optimized to, to those different types of data sets and just walks you through it. Um, you could also go to the Subtleties of Color series of blog posts. Um, one of them is a list of tools where I explain you know, what each one's good for, a little bit about how to use them. Um, there's another one that's come up since I wrote that, wrote that called HCL Wizard, mm-hmm. um, which is a, a more refined version of some of those earlier tools. And I've only used it a few times, but it may be the best of what's out there for doing a custom palette. So you can, you pick your start color, you can pick your end color and have a little bit of control over how you, the gradation occurs between them. Yeah. Uh, and is, is fairly powerful and also will output the, uh, both for like R and Python, but also, you know, just in ASCII, you know, the red, green and blue values. Yeah or even in hacks, right? Um, and, and allows you to set the number of steps uh, very flexibly, so up to like 40 or some. So wow, right. you can get finer gradations than you can with Color Brewer. So I, I really like that one. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I recommend lots of other, you know, there's lots of tools out there, obviously, to help people pick, you know, their own uh, color palettes. I mean, one thing I tell people is, if you like the advertisement in your magazine or on that website, you know, just use that color palette and you can, you know, there are lots of tools you can use to actually go in and take, you like that combination of blue and gold and black or whatever it is, just go in and, and take it and, and use some of these tools out there to do the checks to make sure that they're consistent and, you know, they have the colorblind uh, consistency and all those, all those other sorts of things. Um, but I feel like people, especially folks who are not sort of confident in their design skills, they get a little uncomfortable sort of going in and picking a color palette because they're not designers. Yeah, I can definitely sense that. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, so another problem with the rainbow palette, which I really didn't talk about much, is that because it uses so many colors and they're so saturated, it sort of like uses up the whole spectrum. Well, it literally uses up the whole spectrum. Yeah. And that doesn't leave any room for either overlaying a different data set or highlighting different parts of the data or anything like that. So if, if you do something like you suggested where you take 
pieces from an existing palette or you know the hues that are in the other elements on a page or a website um, and then use some of these tools to just ramp in between them so you can make sure that the, basically the, the trick for a good palette is that every step is equivalent. So if you're going from one to two or 100 to 101, you know, that change in value is, is still the same. Um, so you're not exaggerating any steps, you're not minimizing any steps. And so as long as you do that, there's actually a fair amount of flexibility in what the start and end colors are. So you know, if you, you match or otherwise make you know, a coherent color scheme, you end up with something that is both perceptually accurate and pleasing on a larger sense. Right. Um, and so that's a really good way to look at things is just, okay, what are you already working with or what do you like already? Yeah. And then apply that. Yeah. Very good. Well, uh, I'm always hopeful people will stay away from the rainbow color palette and be careful of their reds and greens. Uh, for the folks with color vision deficiencies, but uh, we'll see. It's an evolution. Um, well, thanks so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Um, it sounds like you guys are doing some exciting work there at Planet Labs, and uh, I look forward to seeing uh, what you guys come up with over the next uh, year or so. All right. You're welcome, John. All right. This has been the Policy Viz podcast. Thank you for listening. <laughs>